I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connections, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. Here we go with another amazing episode. My guest for today is Elise Resch. And Elise is one of the co-authors of the book, Intuitive Eating, which by the way, is now on its fourth edition because the message is so important. So you're going to learn so much in this episode. You're going to hear all about intuitive eating, myths about it, how we feed ourselves with food and with emotions. It's just, it's just amazing. So, all right, let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am incredibly honored to have our guest on today, Elise Resch. Elise, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Karen, for inviting me. I'm excited. I'm I'm so excited for you to share your wisdom. I can't even tell you. So I am just going to turn it over to you and say, Elise, tell the listeners a little bit or a lot about yourself because you have a lot of good resources out there. Well, thank you. And I think I'll start with the fact that I used to be an elementary school teacher when I got out of um, college, did that for a few years, and I went back to graduate school at 30 uh, to become a nutritionist, registered dietitian, didn't exactly know what I was doing with that other than I knew that I wanted to sit in a room with a person and talk about eating. That's all I knew at that point. So, and I've been in private practice 39 years now. So it's, uh, it's my love, it's my career, it's, it's my inspiration, it's my soul's work. And um, I am the co-author of Intuitive Eating, which has been around since uh, 1995. 95, the first edition came out. I co-authored it with, uh, with Evelyn Tripoli. And we are now in our fourth edition, which came out now a year ago, last June, which is just amazing. Um, that a year's gone by so quickly. And uh, I've also done some other writing. I have uh, an intuitive eating workbook for teens that I authored. And that came out um, two years ago, I guess now. And it's not just for teens, but it's for the teen in each of us. I do a lot of work around inner child, inner teen, um, all the feelings that came at that developmental age that we hold with us. I'm pretty up there in age, and I still have a very strong inner teen in me. So uh, a lot of my adult clients like to use my teen book because it gets them back to the time when their eating issues actually began. I also co-authored the Intuitive Eating Workbook with Evelyn. And um, June 1st, I have a new book coming out, which is the Intuitive Eating Journal, Your Guided Journey for Nourishing a Healthy Relationship with Food. It gives a little more space to be creative and flow with um the different principles and prompts. And um, then also on the same day, June 1st, uh, Evelyn and I wrote uh, an intuitive eating card deck, 50 bite-sized ways to make peace with food. So I've been pretty much writing nonstop for about six years. And I've also been um, consulting with others who are writing. I, there's a new book coming out in January by my colleagues, um, Sumner Brooks and Amy Severson. And it's about bringing up intuitive eaters. And I wrote the foreword for that book. So I think that's where I'm headed to do some consulting and, um, you know, kind of pass the torch to the next generation. You know, it's interesting. You use the term soul work as you were talking and, and forgive me for putting myself in your shoes. 
I didn't hear this like frantic, like, and I've been writing this book and I've been writing that book and I see clients. It feels it's coming out of you very soulfully, Elise. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like there's this, this frenetic or frantic, you know, more books, more this, more that. It just flows out of you. And again, I don't mean to speak for you, but that's how it felt sitting here. Well, that's very interesting that you say that, Karen, because that's the way it felt as the book started coming out. Um, the publisher at uh, New Harbinger Press that published the Intuitive Eating um, workbook suggested one for teens. And it was like, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. Let me talk in teen language. And then from that, he suggested the journal and then the card deck and, and one did flow from the other and it just seemed right. I was listening to another podcast that you were on and you were talking about the teen book. And I actually felt very emotional in a, in a beautiful way, not in any other way for so many reasons. One, I can remember prior to my eating disorder starting what it was like to be in a healthy relationship with my body, mm. to play in my body, to eat when I was hungry and stop when I was full. I, I reflected back on that. And you're right. There's so much of us that still needs to speak to that teen child inside of us because no matter where you are in age, that's still with us. I was very moved by it. What What is your experience like with, with the teen work? And, and I wish this were around when I were a teenager, when I was starting to have, you know, disordered concepts about food and body and hunger and fullness. And it may have really prevented me from going full-blown into anorexia nervosa. So I know that's a big ramble, but what are your thoughts? One of the reasons that I love working with teens um, is that it gives me the opportunity to, to give them a different way of thinking. I mean, we're so inundated by diet culture and especially the young generation whose uh, social media is their lives. And and all they're seeing uh, are messages that are directing them toward feeling that they're not okay in the bodies that they have and leading them down the path of diets and ultimately eating disorders. So I get the chance to maybe do a little intervention there with some, um, some logic, some caring. I, I really love the connection that I make with my clients. That's the best part of my work. And uh, the teens trust me. It doesn't matter the age difference. They just they just seem to be able to talk to me and say things to me that they can't say to their parents, which is pretty normal teen. Well, I have to wonder if one of the reasons why they trust you is because you're not giving them a prescribed plan in the sense of you for the you know you need to do this many exchanges, that many exchanges, this many that is what most teenagers and even adults with eating disorders are going to push against. And what you're saying is, is let's be curious. And I don't think people give teenagers enough credit and do that. Well, and along with being curious, and yes, that goes all through the book, there's also um, a sense of understanding of their de developmental age and stage and helping them understand that that feeling to rebel is so strong in them. And that's a sign of their healthy egos and their need to have uh, established their autonomy and their individuation. And then I'm able to move them toward looking at intuitive eating as something that supports their autonomy, that it's not something prescribed given to them from the outside, but in fact, that they have so much wisdom within them that they were born with. And our job is just to help them, uh, our meaning um, the client and me together, uh, to help them really tune back into that wisdom rather than listening to every new diet that comes out or every suggestion that they're not okay the way they are. And here's another piece that I'm finding just miraculous with the teens. As much as they, um, you know, start with, I've just got to be thin. I've just got to be skinny. I'm not thin enough. You know, that's, that's the way that they present. As I start talking to them about social justice, I have been blown away at the um, awareness of the teenagers I talk to. And some of them are going to schools where they're having conversations about what's going on in the world and oppression and, and helping them understand that diet culture is an oppression, that it is, you know, um, 
making certain people feel bad about themselves because they're not meeting the ideal the diet culture comes up with. And they buy into it and it helps them get on track and off the track they're on, but on the, you know, on this track. Yeah. Well, it gives them a healthy thing to focus on and a place to go, a direction, as opposed to an unhealthy place, which is the eating disorder. Yes. And a place to show their rebellion. Yes. You see, because they need to rebel. So let's rebel against society's, you know, prisoning that is being done around size and food and all of that. So it just has been so wonderful to bring that into the conversation. Can you share with listeners how you and Evelyn came up with this concept 25 years ago, or it must have been longer than 25 because the book came out 25 years ago, because it is so please don't be insulted when I say this. It is so brilliant and it is so simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. So how did, how did this happen? And, and just speak from that. Well, I think it starts with the fact that I had my own eating disorder when I was, um, before I started graduate school. And as I went through school and learned the science and started therapy and started healing myself, I knew that I wanted to be in a world where I could help people you know, make peace with food, if that's, you know, the term we want to use. And yet I got out, um, you know, I passed my RD exam, I started my private practice after a bit, and I just kept getting referrals, mostly from physicians who were asking me to help people lose weight. And it just didn't ring right with me. I didn't like it, but I didn't know what else to do. I was not trained in any other way. In graduate school, you learn how to give out those meal plans and you know, even though I would tell people these are not diets, but you know, if you want a cookie, it's okay instead of the apple. But here I was actually telling them how to eat and it didn't feel right. It was, it was one of these, you were talking about my soul before. It was something that was hurting my soul. I didn't like what I was doing. And soon after that, some of the, um, I think one of the first things I read was Fat as a Feminist Issue by Susie Orbach. And then I read, um, uh, let's see, Hunt, uh, Hirschman and Munter's book, Overcoming Overeating, and I, and a little bit of Janine Roth, uh, who is not a professional, but who was very early on talking about non-diet. And I read this and I went, oh my goodness, because I was so psychologically oriented at that point. I'd been in therapy for quite a while. And I thought, that's it. That's it. This is, here's an answer. But here I was a registered dietitian, nutritionist, how could I tell people to eat whatever they wanted? Because that was part of non-diet. And I had to sort all that out within me. And I started writing a book. This is a long way to get to your answer to your question. And I, uh, I put some uh, chapter headings on the computer, wrote a few sentences. I was going to call it the Tao of eating because I was very much into the concept of Taoism because my son at the time had uh, told me to read the Tao of Pooh and it was such, such an amazing book. In any case, at that time, uh, Evelyn lives an hour away from me. I'm, we're both in Southern California, but um, not in the same, exactly the same place. And she was uh, using uh, one of my spare offices once a week to see a couple of her LA clients. And so we would see each other, you know, didn't know each other well, but kind of would pass each other in the hallway. And uh, one day she seemed like there was something wrong. And I said, I stopped and I said, Evelyn, what's wrong? And she said, oh, I'm so frustrated. I'm trying to write this book with a psychologist and she doesn't know how to write. And it was one of these moments of being like Virginia Woolf's moments of being. It was a, I don't know if anybody's ever read, uh, read that, but it was this uh, lightning strike. And I just went with it. And I said, Ellen, I'll write the book with you. I didn't know what she was going to be writing. However, the idea that she was trying to write with a psychologist and I was so psychologically oriented, I thought, great, I'll even though I'm not a psychologist, I'll take over that part. And when we came together, we had similar ideas. It was one of those synchronistic moments. So um, we started tossing, you know, titles back and forth with each other. We kind of divided up chapters and it was a collaborative experience of, of writing the book together. And that's how it began. How was it, how was it seen in the world? How was it taken by people? You know, here you are saying, you know, by the way, dietitians are trained 
to give people meal plans, to tell them how it's supposed to be, to help them, you know, traditional or from years ago, it was to help people lose weight or gain weight. And now here you are saying with this beautiful message, but I don't know if everybody was on board. How did, how did that feel? I think it was shocking for a lot of people, especially because this was the first book written by dietitians. So um, how can a dietitian basically tell you, you can eat whatever you want? And I think people were very uh, suspicious of that. It's like, well, no, if you tell me that I can eat whatever I want, what I want, I will never stop eating whatever pizza, ice cream, whatever their food was that they had deemed, <laughs> you know, something that they shouldn't be eating on a regular basis. So there was a little pushback then. It, um, but there was also reception. I mean, for a book to go into its fourth edition over the years, it was selling as a first edition. So that means people were interested in it and buying it and talking about it. Because, I mean, the book um, publishing world, you know, if, if a book doesn't sell, they're not going to be, the publisher's not going to be interested in doing a second edition. And the interesting thing is that the first book didn't have anything about eating disorders in it. The second edition, which came out a few, few years later, was really the first edition with an edition of a chapter on eating disorders. And that spread it out to the eating disorder community. And I will see, say that there's a lot of pushback, or there has been, there's an openness happening now, but there was a lot of pushback. Oh, you can't use intuitive eating with eating disorders because people don't get the right signals. And it was kind of a reductionist uh, reaction to it because intuitive eating is not the hunger fullness diet. It's not simply about hunger and fullness. And of course, someone who is uh, not nourished, cannot get accurate hunger signals. I mean, you can't tell someone with anorexia, eat when you're hungry because that person will never eat. So um, it, there's been a lot of education. I've talked to a lot of different treatment programs and practitioners about um, how intuitive eating can be incorporated in the world of eating disorders, except for that first one, you know, only eat when you're hungry um, or eat when, or stop when you're full. Uh, so at that point, you know, more people became open to it. There's been a couple of eating disorder treatment programs that have based their program on intuitive eating. Um, Center for Hope at the Sierras or Center for, I can't remember the full name, uh, in, in, in Reno, uh, their whole program is based on intuitive eating. And so was Oliver Pyatt, Wendy Oliver Pyatt, I believe, uh, I believe that she opened the Reno uh, treatment program, and then she opened the one in Florida. So now there are places that are open to it, and little by little, it is more and more accept acceptable. And today, um, it's kind of amazing. I mean, talking about going viral. I mean, intuitive eating has gone viral. I know it has, and and it's it's been it's been long a long time coming. Like we've needed this for so long. There's so many questions, Elise, that I have for you that I, I I'm trying to like. I feel like I have this like Rolodex of people know what a Rolodex is going through my, <laughs> I do. right? Well, <laughs> I, no offense, at least I knew you knew, but some of the listeners yeah, right. might be like, what's a Rolodex? What do you say? Now, now I, I know intuitive eating very well. I've used your book. I've been in the eating disorder community for 15 years. I, I know, I'm, I'm imagining though, there are some people that are listening to this and saying, well, wait, does she mean that I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want and keep eating and eating and eating and eating? I know how I would explain that to people, but mm -hmm. explain to people that don't, that, that just, that's actually missing the concept. That's actually not intuitive eating. And so how do you, how do you talk about it? Well, it starts with a, a phrase that I like, which is um, making all food emotionally equivalent. Because people say to me, well, how can you make, how can you eat whatever you want? There's some foods that just aren't good for you. You know, they have that old label of bad food, good food. And I say, let's start with understanding that we want to have the same emotional reaction, whether we're eating broccoli or eating green jelly beans, I like to say sometimes, that you don't feel good about yourself for eating broccoli or bad about yourself for, you know, eating candy. And so we start there. And then we get to that place of when you've let go of this good and bad food, and you give yourself permission to eat what you really, really tune into your body and are told that you crave, what ends up happening is that you start to 
as, as long as you're very present when you're eating, you start to tune into satisfaction, which I think is the driving force of intuitive eating. So if you're just eating whatever you want, whenever you want at whatever time, and the funny thing is I have a slide um, in one of my talks of a, a snake with a long tongue and it says, your tongue is not the only part of your body. And so it's about listening to your whole body. So yes, your tongue might tell you something and then you happen to know that, well, you know, when I've eaten that before, I didn't feel so well or when I ate too much of it before. And so I think at first people have to give themselves permission to just enjoy food, to allow themselves to eat as much as they need to. And as they're doing that, paying attention, is it still satisfying? Is it, you know, how is my body feeling? And then something psychological happens and it's called the habituation, which is the greater the stimulus, the less the response. So the more you have something, it's not even only food, it could be a person, it could be something else where there's no forbiddenness and there's no magic to it because you're really not allowed to have it once it's completely permissible, it kind of loses its excitement after a while. And there's also something that, that I often don't talk about, but it's called sensory specific satiety, which is hard to get the words out. But that comes from the field of hedonics or the, or the study of pleasure. And um, when food is studied in hedonics, the participants in the study rate food minute by minute for its pleasantness. That's the word that they use. And they find, and now these are not people necessarily with eating disorders or not eating disorders, they're just people who are tasting food and in a neutral way, noticing that after two minutes, the food does not taste as good as it did in the first minute. Now, typically when we eat, we eat a variety of things, so we don't get that, okay, I'm done because the, this food isn't tasting so good. So for people to understand that with that full permission to eat what they want, to eat as much as they need, if they're staying present and being mindful, they're going to notice that it's not so satisfying when they get to that point, usually when they're kind of comfortably full. And so it isn't a free-for-all. And that's, I think, what you're saying, Karen, that, that people think, oh, this is a free-for-all, just, you know, all the time I have to eat whatever I want. And that have to, I found a lot of rebelliousness when people do decide to break away from diet culture and embrace intuitive eating, it's like, yeah, I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want, and I'm going to, even if they don't even want it, to just prove, you know, from that rebellious teen that they're not going to be, you know, um, I don't know, guided by some kind of rules. They're just going to do whatever they want. But that's, it's that's not really intuitive eating, as you said. Intuitive eating is very nuanced. And often people like to take it as, you know, absolutes. And I think that's what you're saying. And this is not an absolute. Go ahead. In fact, I think you had mentioned Janine Roth. And forgive me, I might get this incorrect. I think I've used this example before. Doesn't she write in her book, um, When Food is Love, she writes about something which is she was afraid that if she ate a bite of cookie dough, she'd eat cookie dough for the rest of her life because she loved cookie dough so much. And so she did like an, a test and like ate cookie dough for like three quarters of a day. And then like by the end of the day, she's like, I just want a salad or I just want a sandwich or I just want a piece of fish. And so, and she was paying attention during that experiment. Again, I also want to say, I'm paraphrasing that largely because I don't remember exactly how it went, but that's the difference. She was paying attention and that's what you're saying. Well, right. And um, so paying attention brings you to that sense of, um, yeah, I don't really want it for my fifth meal of the day. <laughs> I've often said to people, or ask people, what's your very favorite food? And they'll come up with anything from a hot fudge sundae to pizza to whatever. And I say, okay, so eat it when, for every meal. Whenever you're hungry, eat that. Oh, are you kidding? No, for the whole week if you want. And they will find, as, as you mentioned that Janine may have said in that book, and I don't remember exactly, but um, that, oh my goodness, yeah, I've had, I've had enough for a while and I do crave something else. The one, one of the ways I did differ from, I think one of the recommendations that Janine had given was uh, just fill your cupboards with all the food you've never let yourself have. And I think that that can be overwhelming for people. So um, I think it's, uh, 
again, nuance, you know, start challenging some of those old no's. What do you think are some of the key issues that go into us losing touch with ourselves and our intuitive eating? Because we were all born with it, right? That's that's why you do this this inner child work, going back to this idea. We were all born with intuitive emotions, intuitive eating, all of it. What's happening? What 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 can you explain to listeners? Well, I want to riff off of that because I often say to clients, we are all born with instinct and we are all born with emotion, but we are not born with beliefs. And those beliefs have to be put into us in our environment. I mean, how do babies learn the language of their you know families? How do they learn the thoughts? Well, they hear them over and over. So I think that for some people, really very early on, even when they maybe start eating solid food, there's a belief, oh, no, you shouldn't have that cookie, you better eat that carrot. Or So for some people, they lose touch with their intuitive signals, even at, in babyhood, for some people. For those who escape that, and I will say things have changed now in the old days, there wasn't a lot of talk about diet culture in schools. There were some nutrition classes. They taught about proteins, fats, carbohydrates. But now, sometimes they lose their their touch with it because they have teachers who are telling them, this is the way to eat to be healthy. And you shouldn't eat that. And you shouldn't have sugar and or have just very little sugar. And then they're disconnected from it. And if they escape that and they become teenagers and they're on social media, and, you know, again, there was no social media way back, but they're bombarded constantly and they're watching you know youtube and they're watching tiktok and they're watching movies and and there's so much of it out there so that's a place a really big place where they start to you know lose touch with it now i've always looked at eating disorders as multidimensional familial societal genetic you know there's so many factors and there are some there are some kids who are really resilient I have seen them where their parents are very eating disorder themselves. And they're like, nope, uh-uh, I don't buy into that. And perhaps that's a rebellion. They're not going to be like their parents are. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's all around us now. And that's how we get the loose touch. And so in, the goal of intuitive eating is simply get yourself back to where you were when your instinct told you about hunger and fullness and what tasted good. Uh, you take a look at your emotions and see how that impacts your you know, desire to eat and your thoughts. And in fact, to me, and not everybody, I think, picks up on this because it's in the foreword to the book and not a lot of people read forewords. My best definition of intuitive eating is a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought. And this kind of goes back to what you're saying about eat whatever you want, whenever. I mean, sure, we can have instincts. Sometimes our instincts are turned off if you're very, very stressed and emotional, your adrenaline's going, your appetite's gone. Or sometimes, you know, your appetite's stimulated beyond just natural hunger. Well, then we get to look at our emotions and how, how are our emotions impacting us? And then we use our rational thought with any hope that rational thought has looked into intuitive eating and health at every size, um, just a sidebar, and uh, you know, help us um, make the best decisions for ourselves. So it's not just instinct. That definition, Karen, I didn't ask me this, but I'm going to tell you, that came out of a very unfortunate incident I had at a conference where a speaker was talking about intuitive eating. And I had seen the talk in the brochure months before, and I contacted the speaker and said, wow, you're talking about intuitive eating. This is so interesting. I'm one of the co-authors. And the person said, uh, oh, I know that. Please come to the talk. It'll be a wonderful talk. I'm going to make this short. The bottom line is it was a talk that was bashing intuitive eating. It was it. The person began with, you know, kind of a, a slide of the book and Evelyn and me and introduced me as an, one of the esteemed authors and then said, I looked up the definition of intuition in the dictionary and it said instinct. And we all know we can't just eat by instinct alone. Well, yeah, we can't just eat by instinct alone. There are these other factors as emotions and thoughts. So we were writing the third edition at that point, And I called Evelyn right away. And I said, oh, my goodness, this is trouble. And she was going to be on a panel with this person the following week. 
which was very difficult as it turned out. And we just said, we've got to get a better def definition. And that's when I was doing some reading. Peter Levine uh, was writing his book and was talking about the evolution of the brain. And I was like, yes, we have these three parts of our brain, the reptilian instinctual, the mammalian or limbic emotional, and then the neocortex. That's what intuitive reading is, a dynamic interplay among those three parts of the brain. There's a part of your book, and it it might be at the very, very beginning, where you describe that, but in a different way. And it reminded me of the movie Inside Out. Do you remember that movie, the Pixar movie? Yes, I do. Where there's, you know, all the different emotions and you see the, the little girl walking down the street and then you see all the emotions happening inside. And you or Evelyn, I don't know who was writing which part, were talking about everything that is going into a decision when we're walking towards the refrigerator it's mm. everything how tired are you what are you in the mood for do you want something salty do you want something sweet did you have a really light breakfast so you're actually really more hungry like like it was just this whole and it's it's amazing because elise it does kind of happen like that but it doesn't that's the crazy thing but all these all these like all these things are happening in our brain and in our body and in our hearts while we're trying to make an appropriate, when I say appropriate, I want to say present decision, intuitive decision. Yes, I'm a hundred percent. And um, so it's not just instinct. The instinct might say, I'm hungry, I need to eat, but then you go through these other things and you also look at emotions and how are my emotions impacting this? So um, but the thoughts are so powerful sometimes, the, the negative thoughts that don't really allow you to eat what's satisfying. And I have said this many times, I believe that satisfaction is the driving force of intuitive eating. It's the lens to look through when um, you're deciding what to eat. Is this going to be satisfying to my mouth? Is it going to be satisfying to my body? You know, and how hungry do I want to be to have a satisfying meal? Anyone who... Um, who eats when they're not hungry knows that it's just not as good as when you have some moderate hunger. And if you're ravenous, you can't even taste the food because that instinctual, you know, primitive part of the brain that's there for survival is just sending out one chemical and hormone after another to get you to eat as fast as you can to survive. So that's not very satisfying either. So how do you work with clients that, and, and by the way, this is probably like a, a pretty big question, but you know, I have a lot of clients that don't feel that they deserve things like satisfaction. Uh -huh, right. And they can use that either in ways of restricting by saying, I don't deserve the pleasure, mm -hmm. or by harming themselves through binging to the point of incredible discomfort. How do you work with that? And again, I know that's a big question. Well, I, I think it's an appropriate question because um, I find that the majority of people who come to me who have been dieters, they want more satisfaction. It's the people with severe eating disorders, especially the restrictive type, although you're talking about the binge type as well, who don't, be, don't believe that they deserve satisfaction. So I like to have a conversation about needs and about the fact that I truly believe that very early in life, um, if our emotional, well, physical needs, certainly, but they may be met, but if our emotional needs are not met, that very often, there's kind of like the psychic thing that happens where um, a very young person shuts off needs because it's just too painful to have needs that aren't being met. And so then they, these are the people and very, so many of our clients with eating disorders are doing this. They're taking care of everybody else. They're such, you know, caregivers and, but they're not taking care of themselves because they've negated their right to have their needs met. And so I talk about that and help them understand that, you know, satisfaction is, has to come along with being able to appreciate that you do have a right to have your needs met. And I will say this, anyone I work with with an eating disorder is also in psychotherapy and I'm in contact with the therapists I work with. And so there's a joint effort to help them heal that part of themselves so that they can come to that place of appreciating satisfaction. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it's it all does. You know, what's coming to my mind is when um 
Carolyn and Gwen wrote the eight keys to recovery from an eating disorder. And one of the, one of the assignments in the, in the book is how is my relationship with food like my relationship with people? And it makes me think, and I'll use my own example. I, I was restrictive with food in my eating disorder, and I was certainly restrictive in life. So there was nothing that I was doing that was intuitive. Do you see that come up a lot? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it is very uh, connected to a belief that you don't have a right to have your needs met, whether they're social needs, physical needs. Yeah, just it's a way of being ascetic and not you know, uh, not emotional, really. Mm -hmm. You know, I, there's a part of me, I kind of want to take a hard turn, but I, I, I'm having, I'm just, sometimes I do this podcast just for myself. <laughs> I'm just having such a lovely conversation, but I don't want to make, I want to make sure that we talk about the principles of intuitive okay. eating. Like, sure. I feel like we're just having this beautiful conversation, but let's talk about the principles so people can hear it. So they don't have a misconception of what intuitive eating is. And uh, a preface to talking about the 10 different principles is that they don't have to be in any particular order. There are a lot of people who like to take intuitive eating very rigidly or teach it rigidly. We have to go from one to the next to the next. So I just want to say that. And when I was writing the teen book, I, I kind of joked about um, how I took all the principles, threw them up in the air and let them land wherever they wanted to. But, and, and also when we were writing the fourth edition, we changed a couple of the order of a couple of the principles from previous books after, you know, doing some um, observation of what, you know, what had, had happened in our practices. So the first principle is uh, reject the diet mentality. And I actually think, oh gosh, let's hope there's not a fifth <laughs> edition. <laughs> I'm just recovering from the fourth edition. Yeah, you're like, I can feel it. it like there's something, there's a storm blowing in. <laughs> I think uh, it would be uh, appropriate to rename it reject diet culture but it's always been reject the diet mentality. And that one I would never take out of order because as long as someone is thinking, oh yeah, if this intuitive eating thing doesn't work, I'm gonna try and I don't even wanna name the diets. We all know what is popular right now. What that does is puts a person in a sense of future deprivation. So the mere perception I'm going to go on that diet later and be deprived of something doesn't really allow them to get in touch with what they really want to eat and uh, have full permission to eat what they want. So it's essential, absolutely essential to be in a place where one knows I can never go on another diet. I did a session last night with a man for the first time who really isn't ready, quite ready for intuitive eating because he's thinking, yeah, I'm going to give this a try, but I really do have to lose a number of pounds he mentioned. And so I think that that's key. And the only way to get there is to really understand the damage the diets can do, the damage in so many ways, phys physically and mentally, and really help people to get to that point of saying, yeah, I can't do this to myself ever again. So that's, that's principle one. And then um, principle two is honor your hunger. Although I will say, I don't work on that right away with clients. I like to jump to, um, which is now principle five, discover the satisfaction factor. Because as I was saying before, I think when you look through a lens of satisfaction, it, it really helps you determine the best level of hunger or fullness. Um, I will often say to a client, um, do you think you'd eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on your way to your very favorite restaurant? And of course, during the pandemic, nobody was going to the restaurants, but a few things are opening up now. And inevitably, inevitably, people say, well, of course not. Like, what's wrong with you, Elise? How dumb? What a dumb question. And then I say, well, why not? And I say, because I wouldn't have an appetite. I wouldn't be hungry. And I say, bingo, you know, that's why you can take that piece of satisfaction and help you determine that if you stay present to your hunger, eating at a level of comfortable hunger will give you more satisfaction in your meal. And it actually, you know, can affect all of the other principles too, including fullness. Food's not so satisfying when you're at the last cookie in the bag versus the first couple of cookies in the bag. Okay, but so that's out of order. But in the book, it's honor your hunger. And it's it really is looking at all the different signs of hunger because people have a misconception. They think it means hunger is just growling in the stomach. Actually, my stomach never growls. I feel hunger in my throat. 
And sometimes I realize a headache's coming on and I've just missed, you know, missed the hunger. So it's helping people look at all the different possible signs of hunger and, and then come to a place of uh, realizing they're going to enjoy their food a lot more if they eat when they're hungry. And then the, the next principle is make peace with food, which to me probably might come even earlier um, in that what I was saying before, that emotional equivalency. It's like, sure, I know that these foods have more nutrient value than those foods. I am a dietitian. However, you know, all foods need to be uh, emotionally equivalent, meaning you feel the same way, you know, not good about yourself or bad about yourself. And I do like to take some of my science. I do a lot of um, science education with clients. And I say, you know, all foods really get broken down to carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. And if they're protein, nitrogen, once they get to that point where they're absorbed, we can only absorb in one molecule, molecule substance. So we have this amazing body that starts digesting food in the mouth and goes all the way down to the, to the small intestine where it gets, where it gets um, absorbed. And I say, so if everything breaks down to carbon, hydrogen, oxy uh, oxygen, and nitrogen, how can we say that certain foods are, you know, forbidden and certain foods aren't? And yeah, some foods have other things they bring in, vitamins, minerals, fiber. And it really helps people kind of neutralize this. This is a bad food. I could never eat that. So making peace with food is critical because if you're holding a sense of this is bad food, I shouldn't eat it, that restriction will completely disconnect you from your intuitive signals. And it leads to a, a real deep deprivation, which can, as we were saying before, uh, in terms of early life, can connect you to the deprivation you had early in life, whether it's you know, economic, emotional, whatever kind of deprivation. So we want to avoid that by just making peace, peace with food. And then um, it's challenge the food police. So who are the food police? They're everybody in your life that uh, is trying to tell you what's right to eat, what's wrong to eat, what's gonna make you healthy, not healthy. It can start with your own family and then it you know, goes out to, to the school. And I'll tell you, as much as I appreciate the medical community in so many ways, there is a lot of fat phobia and weight stigma and weight bias in the medical model. And I, I, will, I will venture to say that a majority of my clients who have eating disorders, remember a time when they went to the doctor, maybe little girls when they're heading toward pu puberty and have gained some weight so that they can make the hormones to get their first periods. The doctor says, oh gosh, she, you know, in the presence of the child, oh, she just lost, she gained five pounds. Yes. I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but I That's have okay. to for a moment sure. because I have a client who, when she was younger, went to the doctor's for something like, I don't know, a cold or whatnot. And the doctor told her mother she needed to go on a diet. Fast forward, this client of mine is now in college and is so afraid to go to the doctors. And she has an eating disorder, but she was so sick from something completely unrelated to an eating disorder. And she was so afraid to go to the doctors that she ended up passing out at home and a wellness check had to be happened, had to be happened, <laughs> had to happen. And they had to take her by ambulance to the hospital for this mm -hmm. horrific infection that she had, all because she's like, I am not going to go to the doctors because every time I went when I was little, the first thing they said to my parents is, what is she eating? I think we need to put her on a diet. She's out of her range. She's, And I thought, my, first of all, my heart was breaking, Elise. Can you imagine being so terrified to be for fat phobia, to be Im impressed upon you that you end up passing out in your home? Granted, this is a very extreme situation, but this is something that just happened with one of my clients a few months ago. And, you know, I don't think it's extreme. I mean, what happened to her having to go to the hospital, but I think it's very common so many of my clients don't want to go to the doctor because they don't want to be fat shamed. They don't want to be put on the scale. I tell people, you can refuse to be put on. You don't have to get on a scale. You can always say, no, I won't do that. But in any case, they don't want the doctor to say, you know, you really need to lose 25 pounds. And it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> they feel horrible about themselves. Yeah. So they don't go and they miss all kinds of medical things that may not be as acute as your clients, but certainly, um, 
this, the, the weight stigma and studies show weight stigma has a tremendous negative effect on health, far more than anybody's weight. And so, yeah, that's, uh, it's very troublesome. And the best I can, doctor by doctor, I try to educate doctors um, about, you know, the dangers of talking about that to their clients. And they don't even know that they need to gain weight sometimes. It's, it's unbelievable. Sonia Renee Taylor was on the show a few months back and she talked about, she would go to the doctors and whether it was for strep throat or whatnot. And the first thing the doctor would say is you need to go on a diet. And she said to the doctors, what do you tell a thin person who walks in with strep throat? That's the medica medication I want. That's all I want. Don't say anything else. I'm fine. I'm healthy. So it's you, it is, it is infuriating. It's demeaning. It's demoralizing. It's, it's frightening that all that somebody goes to the doctors. And, and another thing that she had said, which, you know, you always hear this, like only 5% of diets work, 5% of diets work, five, like 95% of the people cannot stay on a diet. And she said to the doctor who prescribed her a diet, she said, would you prescribe me a medication that only had 5% efficacy? You would never do that. So don't put me on a diet. Good for her. I love her. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was really, it was wonderful. And it's a, it's heartbreaking though, that she has to do that. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. I didn't so, mean to interrupt. No, Go ahead. no, I'm, we're, we're on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll quickly get through the other principles. Yeah. I apologize. One, no, no, no. I've already talked enough about the satisfaction factor. That's the next one. The next one's failure fullness. And I have to say that in order to be able to honor fullness, we have to have food security. If someone is coming either from an economic, you know, food insecurity, lack of access to food, don't tell that person to stop eating when you're comfortably full. I mean, that person will need to get as full as they can because they don't know when the next meal is going to come. And it's the same thing, not the same, but similar when you are not making full peace with food. So when you're putting your own food insecurity in by telling yourself that you really shouldn't have more than this amount or you really shouldn't have certain foods, how, how can you possibly feel your fullness and say, okay, I'm going to stop now because there's that fear of the future deprivation. And I, I wrote a paper a long time ago called The Sadness of Saying Enough. And it's essentially about that feeling that comes up when we are staying present, when we know that the food isn't tasting quite as good, our, we're comfortably full, we really don't want to be uncomfortable by continuing to eat. There's that moment of, oh, this wonderful experience is about to end. I had that with my bowl of spaghetti on Saturday night. It was like, yeah, I think I've, I've had enough, but that's so good. And then I thought, well, I get to warm it up to the rest of it tomorrow. So I think that, that this chapter has to have is also nuanced. It's not just find that level of fullness and you know that's gonna make you comfortable and stop. You have to look at all those other factors that affect it. And then uh, cope with your emotions with kindness. Now that chapter was retitled in the old book, in the earlier editions, it was cope with your feelings without using food. And Evelyn and I realized that was a very harsh statement. And so we changed it to with kindness because, you know, sometimes it's the only coping mechanism we can have is food. And thank God we've had it. I will say that about my own history. Thank God I had my food to get me through some hard times. And so it's about being kind and understanding that sometimes food is comforting and that's perfectly fine. It's just looking at the times when you're no longer feeling comforted by food, when it's used to numb yourself or to be self-destructive in, a, in a, something that you had said earlier, that we want to start developing additional coping mechanisms. So that's what that chapter is about. Then respect your body, which is in so many ways, the way you treat your body, the way you talk to yourself about your body, the way you understand that you're more than just your body size or shape, that there's so many incredible qualities that we have and amazing things that our bodies do just to keep us alive. It's remarkable, you know, that our heart has to beat so many times a day and so many chemical reactions that have to happen in the body. So that's respect your body. And then the next chapter is movement, feel the difference. And that was previously called exercise, feel the difference. And I have been using the term movement for a long time. 
exercise, sure, if somebody likes to exercise, fine. However, this is not about that. This is about listening to your body, what feels good, what's fun, you know, and not abusing, abusing your body uh, through exercise. And then the very last chapter, which has always been the last chapter in every one of the books, which is honor your health with gentle nutrition. And frankly, I don't think we need it because I think that if we're listening to ourselves, um, we're going to understand that we feel better when we have a balance of foods, when we eat regularly throughout the day. I, I don't think there's that much education that needs to be done in terms of gentle nutrition, but we are dietitians and that's in the book and it's got some you know, really wonderful things in the chapter, but I do trust people to know because that's what intuitive eating is, internal wisdom. It's so interesting because there's a few things that are coming up for me. First of all, as a recovered person, it is, and, and I'm gonna, I wanna say this so people can hold this for motivation or something to be inspired to. It is pretty powerful, Elise, to be able to read through your book and say, I do that now. I live my life like that. I am doing this. You know what I'm saying? It's, and when I say powerful, I mean, again, I always say the how emotional I get. It, I, I can sit here and tell you that when I was in my eating disorder, I don't know why this kept coming to my mind when, while you were talking. I remember every time I went out to eat, I could be at a place that had a 10 page menu and all I looked at was the salads. That's it. Not only that, but then I had to do it my way with things on the side and this and that and the other thing. And I literally brought my eating disorder so much to the table that I never, even though I thought, well, this makes me happy and this makes me feel safe and comfortable. I was never, and this is where food is also emotional. I was never present, happy, looking at everybody else, what they were eating. And, and for me to go to a restaurant and, and Elise, it's, it's been, I'd say 25 years that I'm recovered. I still sometimes get this like, like beating in my heart in a positive way of like, I still, I love going to a restaurant now and looking at the whole menu and getting something that looks, sounds, smells delicious. And also then the decision's over and I join the people that I'm with. When you do it with an eating disorder and only look at one section and then everybody, you're still in your eating disorder. I, I just don't think that people understand that it's not just the food, it's the emotional, we are, it's the emotional connection that you cannot experience when you're in an eating disorder. And I feel exactly the same way you do. And I have said, I, I am just in awe. It is awesome. And the best way that we can use that term on a regular basis, even to this point, and I haven't had a problem with eating in 40 years that, oh my goodness, I was doing this or that and oh, my body's telling me I'm hungry and I wasn't even thinking about it, but now I, now I know and I know what I want to eat. I, I'm with you, we're, we're yeah. exactly on the same page. Yeah. And when I think of the things that I almost didn't do, I almost didn't go to a dinner where Gloria Steinem was the, um, yeah, she was the honored guest. And I was so steeped in my eating disorder that I thought, how can I do that? It's going to be a meal. It was on a Wednesday night. I only let myself really eat on a Saturday night, you know, those kinds of things. And I finally broke through it and let myself go to that dinner and ate normally. And I think, oh my goodness, that eating disorder could have kept me from meeting Gloria Steinem. Gloria Steinem. Right. <laughs> So yes. <laughs> Another thing that I think of is that and and I consider this my own version of intuitive eating which I don't is that I love and I've said this before on the podcast I love I love going out to eat. <laughs> it's like my thing. You know, I work in a city, I can just walk to a restaurant and meet people and I used to go out my 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 ex-partner and I used to go out to dinner all the time and we'd sit at the bar. And by the time I got there, Elise, I was so emotionally just tired from a really full day of being a therapist. Like I felt very satisfied. I felt very just good, but I was also tired. And he used to say to me, what do you want? And I'm like, just whatever you want to order, we'll do. Because we also like doing a lot of small, like I we, we get tons of appetizers. 
And for me, intuitive eating is also trusting that a meal is just a meal. And, and if, if he didn't order exactly what I wanted, it was okay because there's another meal and I can't put all this energy. And sometimes what being recovered to me is about is saying to somebody, I just had a really long day and I just want to sit here and have a really nice sip of this beautiful glass of wine. You order the food. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I certainly don't want to define intuitive eating for you, mm-hmm. but I think that's also part of intuitive eating where it's, it's, it's okay, whatever it is, it is. Well, I think you're, you are spot on with that because when you have an eating disorder and you finally let yourself eat something, it's the be all and the end, end all. And if it isn't the perfect meal, if it isn't the, you know, quite enough or it's, it's devastating. But when you know that there, as you said, you know, okay, this didn't work out. I've got five times to eat or five or six times I'm going to eat tomorrow. Yeah. Or you might be at someone's house for dinner and you're having a wonderful time socially and they're not a very good cook. And, oh, well, and I think that that is a sign of full healing is when you are able to have a more neutral approach. It doesn't mean you don't care. It doesn't mean you don't want, you know, something wonderful and delicious. It just means that it's okay. And I, I, yes, I hear you. It means that one thing is not driving your life. If I were in my eating disorder, I would get off of work, sit down, ruminate over the menu. And in, so that's because one thing was driving my life because it's not, I was more into seeing my partner looking around the restaurant, you know, thinking a little bit about the day. So again, it's the, that's part of the difference. When we're driven by one thing, everything else falls by the wayside, including our relationships with people, our relationship to ourselves. Sometimes I love just going into a restaurant and noticing the lighting is different than it was in my office and, and how soothing that feels because I'm not driven by, okay, I hope they have exactly what I want on the menu. And if they don't have it, are they going to make it the way I want so it's, it's, I, I don't even know where I'm going. It's freeing. Well, what's your, where you're going with it. And what I say to people, when I say, this is what I have to offer you with intuitive eating. It's a freedom. It's a freedom to just enjoy your food, enjoy your life, to have a richer life, a freedom to trust your body. You don't have to worry about it. It's all going to work out fine. Yeah. Elise, I have to tell you, I'm I'm sorry to say that we're we're gonna have to start closing this up because I, I am so enjoying this conversation. As am I. <laughs> is there anything I, I do have a final question for you, but before I get to that, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share or just something you wanted to say before we before we close down? Well, I think there's just this one piece you you quickly mentioned about the you know statistics on how diets don't work. I think we have to take it a piece further besides the fact that they don't work, that they rebound, that people who lose weight gain it back and more. I think we have to look at the role that diets have in oppressing people because what diets do um, are they tell you that you're not okay the way you are. <clears throat> and the only way you're gonna be okay is if you lose weight. So I think we have to keep that piece also present besides they don't work you'll gain the weight back it's not just about that it's about what is it saying so i would say that beautifully said all right elise i have to ask you your final question has nothing to do with eating disorders nothing to do with this interview okay so the question is if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall what would it say i think it would say world changing badass Love it. <laughs> there it is. In fact, that might be the title of the fifth edition. <laughs> thank you. Elise, again, thank you very much. I'm really, really honored to have had you on the show. Oh, and I am so happy to have been here. It's been such a pleasure. Now we have to see each other in person someday. I know, right? And I can't even imagine what it's going to feel like when we all meet again at our first conference after being virtual conferences. It's, right. Right. it's going to be powerful. Yes. Yes. All righty. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for listening to another edition of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you. Did I say that correctly? Each and every one of you, I apologize, next week. So for now, stay safe and take care. Bye-bye. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, 
Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.